this is uh, our last sermon before we will return after what's been a really long break from Colossians. Um, once again to Colossians next week when we get there. Um, we've been kind of bouncing around, I think, ever since like the very beginning of November. We might have returned to it like once and then um, kind of did stuff for Thanksgiving and um, some of the sorrow that was going on earlier in first part of November, uh, trying to address that with some comfort specifically from Scripture. And then um, Thanksgiving, and then we had Christmas, and then we're in the New Year. And so this sermon is kind of uh, covering that last aspect that I told you guys that I wanted to uh, cover. So um, three Sundays ago, we looked at the importance of knowing Christ and pursuing after a full knowledge of Christ. And growing in that and allowing that to then transform how we live. Uh, last week, we looked at loving. And as we looked at that, we looked at both loving God and then loving others. And then this week, uh, we're going to look at the idea of service and challenge us to go into this new year prepared to serve and pursuing opportunities to serve in various capacities. And just the um, importance that we should put on that um, as we see the importance that Christ himself puts on our acts of service to one another. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. And as, as we start, I want you to think about where you lead. And some of you may think that's an intimidating question. I'm not in a position of leadership. Um, you know, I'm kind of the low person on the totem pole at work. I'm, you know, the child in the classroom. I'm the child at home. Um, or, you know, I, I'm the spouse that, you know, doesn't really lead in the relationship, and so I don't really lead. And let me challenge you, though, that you do lead. You lead in some capacity, at least. All of us lead in some way. Our, our decisions that we make, the actions that we take, demonstrate leadership. They guide, they direct, and they teach people. So whether you're a spouse, uh, you're leading in some way. Whether you're a parent, you're leading, hopefully, your children in a uh, godly manner. Other family relationships, grandparents, uncle, aunt, siblings, you're teaching your, your, your fellow siblings how to live. Um, and so if you make foolish, poor choices as a young child, it influences the younger children or maybe even the older children in the, the family to follow after your footsteps. And so, so how we respond in various situations demonstrate what we believe about leadership, what we believe about um, what leadership is and what God requires of us. And in this morning, Jesus is going to say that there are two competing philosophies on leadership. And the two competing philosophies uh, are either the world's philosophy, which has lots of different subcategories, or you follow God's view of leadership. And so as we work through this passage, I want you to look at this and ask yourselves, I want to ask myself, what philosophy of leadership am I pursuing? Am I pursuing the world's philosophy of leadership, or am I pursuing God's philosophy of what biblical leadership should look like? So, how do you approach leadership responsibilities you're given? I think that there are a couple questions that maybe would be beneficial as we work through this passage, that you would be thinking through these questions. And as you answer these questions, even you know mentally as I ask them, hopefully it'll help you then as we are expose ourselves to the Word of God to more effectively think through 
your answers right now in comparison to what God says leadership should look like. What are your goals in leadership? How do you expect people to respond to your leadership? What happens when people fail to respond in a positive way towards your leadership? Those are a couple of questions that I think will begin to get us thinking in the right direction. Now, if you would take your Bibles and let's go to Mark chapter 10. We'll begin reading in verse 35 and we'll read through verse 45. Mark 10, verse 35 through verse 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, you will be baptized. Because it sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard this, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever desire and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I believe that as we work through this passage, we're going to see that the theme of the passage is this. Serve to be a great leader. Serve to be a great leader. Jesus unequivocally tells his disciples that service is the primary demonstration of leadership and greatness. Why does Jesus bring up the question of greatness? I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead and making you think a little bit ahead of getting there. But why does Jesus bring up the question of greatness? It's, it's not a word that the disciples have introduced to the conversation. So how does Jesus make the connection between what the disciples are asking about and what he himself is answering them about? So I think as we work through the passage, the answer to this question will become clear. As we, as we begin, though, I, I think that we need to examine common misconceptions about greatness and the fact that those abound. They abounded in Jesus' day, but they continue to abound. You and I have many misconceptions, misunderstandings, misapplications of truths that we've heard, things that maybe our parents have told us, things that maybe a teacher told you at some point, things that you heard from an employer or from other employees that tell you something about what greatness is. And yet often the things that we hear from these sources do not align with truth of God's word. They're misconceptions from the world. They're following after the philosophy of the world 
when it comes to what great leadership looks like. And there's many different subcategories and different aspects to that. And the disciples in this instance show that they themselves have a serious misconception about what greatness is. And Jesus is going to masterfully work through this conversation to reveal their misconceptions to them and help them to correct their misunderstanding. As the story begins in verse 35, the disciples, James and John, went once Jesus to do whatever they asked him. They approach Jesus in verse 35 and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And this begins to demonstrate the extent of their misconception. In seeking their desires, they believe that they can deceive or manipulate Jesus. They don't approach Jesus and tell Jesus immediately what they want. Their response to the situation is much like, you know, your young children. That, you know, they seek to play off of each other. It's amazing. I mean, it's so, so young. I see Anastasia do it all the time. She'll ask Bethany for something. Bethany gives her a fine answer to the question, like, we're not watching TV till after the afternoon nap. And she comes to me while I'm, you know, finishing up something in the kitchen or I'm trying to study or I'm, you know, doing whatever I'm doing. And she's like, Daddy, can I watch TV? And I'm like, you're trying to deceive us. And that's exactly what the disciples are doing too. They're trying to deceive Jesus. They're trying to get their way by not really telling what they want. Their motives and their method are both flawed. It'd be one thing if their you know, motives were pure and their method itself was wrong. But no, their, their method and their motives are both flawed. They are trying to deceive the Son of God. And so they come and they're like, Hey, Jesus, will you do whatever we ask you? And yet, as we examine this passage, we're going to see that our own motives and our own methods at times are flawed as well. Jesus responds to them with a heart-revealing question. It's amazing how masterfully Jesus uses good questions throughout this passage to reveal people's heart motives. And so Jesus responds in verse 36, and he tells the disciples who have this misconception of greatness, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And the question doesn't immediately appear as if it is a heart-revealing question, and yet as they provide an answer, it reveals their motives. It reveals what they want. It reveals what they're pursuing. What they think is the most supreme, important thing to pursue after with their entire being. What is it that they desire? What is it that they want? They desire to share in a high portion of his glory, of God's glory. That's what they're pursuing after. That's what they're chasing after. That's the biggest thing in their lives right now, is how do we participate in a big portion of the glory of God? And so they approach Jesus in verse 38, or verse 37, to answer his question, and they say, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand, 
and the other on your left hand in your glory. They assume from their question that Jesus is the one who has primary glory. Because the person in the center of the party back in the Middle Eastern time period, they were the centerpiece. They were the focal point. Everybody understood when they went to the party and they saw the center person, they are the person who is the primary person. So they're like, Jesus, we know that that part's already taken. We know that you are the, the most important person. We know that we can't surpass that. But somebody's got to be number two and somebody's got to be number three, Jesus. So, you know, us. One of us can sit on your right, right hand and the other can sit on your left hand. And we would have amazing positions in your presence. And as a result, we would share in your glory, Jesus. Nothing would give us more greater pleasure than to be able to share in just a small taste of your greatness and your glory in this manner, Jesus. This would be, this would be supreme. They're assuming that they deserve this. And they're assuming that this is something that can simply receive by being placed in this position. They don't point to you know, what they've done to deserve this position. It's just like, hey, an appointment to this position of glory is all that we need. And so they approach Jesus, and their misconception is that greatness and glory are received through a future position, not through their character. And so I think it's important for you and I to ask ourselves what misconceptions we may have about our own and what greatness in our position looks like. The world puts forward many different philosophies, many different ideas about what greatness looks like and why one may be great. For many, many years, I wanted to pursue a career in politics because, let's face it, I mean, it's a pretty epic position if you're, you know, Known by a lot of people, and you have a title, and you know people feel like you're important, and people will dress up to come see you, and they want to meet you, and they want to you know get to know you because they want you to try to do stuff for them. We very often in America and around the world in general have this idea that somehow a title or a position that we hold somehow puts us in a position of honor. It puts us in a position of greatness. Sometimes we, you know, reject that idea, but we we pursue the appeal, we pursue the attraction of the world, the acceptance of the world, and the thing that we are pursuing after is that our peers or those that we look up to would would see us as great. And so we seek to conform to their way of life by pursuing different things, whether it's pursuing the music these people like or by pursuing the clothes that these people like or by pursuing 
the appearance that we believe so and so expects to see in our lives and we pursue all these things that we believe will bring the acceptance of those who we love so we adopt different words we adopt different phrases we adopt different attitudes towards various situations because we believe that the people that we want to attract we want to accept us will be more likely to do so based on those character traits. It has nothing to do with our hearts. It has everything though to do with our view that if I adopt these character traits, these people will accept me. And I desire acceptance. And through, through their acceptance, I will be great. Jesus is going to point to this in a little bit as he talks about the world philosophy and one of the other demonstrations of it, but he says, some people really think that greatness is just by having a lot of people obey you. He tells them, the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercised authority over them. And maybe that is what characterizes your view of greatness, is having people bow to your every wish with no questions asked. And Jesus says all of these are misconceptions. You see, the misconceptions that you and I can have, the misconceptions that the disciples had about what greatness looked like, the misconceptions that we currently have abound. We could go on and on talking about the many different ways that people misperceive and misunderstand the world of especially when it comes to what God defines as greatness. What does Jesus do? How does Jesus respond to all this? Look with me at the very first part of verse 38. You do not know what you ask. What's he doing? He is rebuking them. Jesus rebukes them. You know, Jesus would do the same thing to us if we were to articulate clearly any one of these misconceptions that we may have as well. The point isn't that, you know, Jesus simply rebukes people who have this misconception about wanting to be second or third place in his glory and sharing it that way. The point is, Jesus doesn't look at greatness the way we do. Jesus has a different definition of greatness. And so we are deserving of Jesus' rebuke just as much as James and John if our definition of greatness is not in alignment with his definition of greatness. The problem isn't this one demonstration that James and John give of, of a misconceived understanding of greatness. The problem is that there are so many So Jesus now begins to rebuild a proper understanding, a proper under, uh, proper framework for understanding what is greatness. What is leadership? How do you and I go forward from today and be better leaders? And so Jesus begins to build a new definition. And he starts off by telling them, sorrow will accompany great leadership. Exactly what every one of us wanted to hear, right? Not really. Like, I hear the word sorrow, and I'm like, no, I've had enough of that in my life. I'm, I'm good. 
that's what leadership means, then, you know, let's not include me in that. Yeah, that's what he says it's going to include. He says, sorrow will accompany great leadership. As soon as he rebukes them in verse 38, he turns around and he asks them a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. Following his rebuke, Jesus asked them if they are fully, if they fully understand the cost of greatness. Jesus desires to point them to the fact that the glory of greatness are accompanied by sorrow. He tells them that he himself is going to face extreme sorrow. And some of the, the words that he uses are a little difficult to understand. The first one, as he describes the sorrow that he faces, is one that we are quite familiar with. He goes to Matthew, if you think about Matthew 26, verse 39, he says there, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In the context of Matthew 26, what is going on? Jesus knows that he is getting ready to go to the cross and die for your sins and for my sins. And he goes before the Father and he says, Father, if it's possible, don't let me go through this agony. Don't let me go through this suffering. And in Mark chapter 10, he's telling the disciples, are you able to take the cup that I'm going to take? Are you able to take the baptism that I'm able to take? And the baptism reference is a little more difficult, but I think it's picking up on the same idea. It seems to be the idea that he's going to be completely overwhelmed with, encircled by, and placed into huge amounts of suffering. This isn't a reference to the baptism that we have up here. It's not a reference to Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism has already taken place at the beginning of his ministry. So it's not a reference to a physical water baptism. could be that it's a reference somehow to like the death, burial, and resurrection. But once again, that you're going to some aspect of the suffering, the sorrow of Jesus. The point of the passage is what? Is that there's going to be extreme sorrow in receiving this greatness. In getting to this position of great leadership that Jesus is going to have, where he's the primary focus in this party that the disciples are looking forward to, he says... Part of what is going to be required of that is a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain. Now the disciples, as they hear this, James and John, their, their answer in verse 39 is, We are able. They affirm that they are able. Like, we got this, Jesus. Suffering, sorrow, pain. Absolutely, we can, we can do this. We got you. And Jesus assures them that they will both suffer, but that he does not have the ability to control their own conscience. Verse 39 going forward. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized, with you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left <coughs> is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Jesus tells the disciples what? going to suffer. Not in the same way. 
not necessarily to the same extent that Jesus does, but you will suffer. There will be sorrow. There will be pain. James goes on, and what happens to James? In the book of Acts, James is martyred for his faith. John is not martyred for his faith. But does John suffer persecution as a result of his faith? Absolutely. So they, they don't suffer the same fate. They don't suffer the same extent of sorrow and pain. But Jesus is telling them, in your pursuit of you know, greatness on my behalf, you will suffer sorrow. You will suffer pain. And I'm not able to give you what you want. Because the Father is the one who's these positions for those who he sees fit, and Jesus is unable to give it to them. Jesus then assumes that there will be some level of suffering involved in greatness. And so as you and I seek after greatness, I don't think it's bad to seek after greatness. I think we have to be very careful in why we're seeking greatness and the method we're seeking remember I said that James and John, their, their motives and their method were flawed. We have to have the right motives and we have to have the right method as we pursue greatness. Jesus is encouraging people to pursue leadership, but to do it in the right way with the right methods, the right heart. Jesus then is instructing them how they are to approach suffering and they should view it as part of the process. And as you and I pursue responsibilities and leadership, whether that be within your home, whether that be in your own family, meeting your siblings, whether that be in your school setting, or among your distant relatives, at work, etc., etc., or within the church context, you and I should expect that we will face sorrow, that we will face pain as we pursue greatness. That's what Jesus tells his disciples. Pain and sorrow will accompany the pursuit of greatness. He's not telling them to go look for pain and sorrow. Okay, don't go looking for it. They'll come and find you. Okay. But we shouldn't expect that we will escape the pain and sorrow as we pursue service but Jesus comes, and now he's going to correct the bigger misconception that the disciples have. And the bigger dis misconception deals with service. And he tells them that service will accompany great leadership. In verse 41 and following, what happens? We have more misconception, right? The disciples, the, the, the other ten, They've been listening, and it's almost like you can kind of see like James and John like with Jesus up ahead of the disciples, kind of almost out of earshot, but not quite, but kind of like lingering back with Jesus. And now all of a sudden, like the other ten are like, they're zoned into this conversation. I mean, it's not a long conversation, like, you know, 20 steps, and you can just barely hear it, and, you know, maybe even 10 steps ahead or 10 steps behind, like, they're just barely hearing it, and they're like picking up on what exactly is going on. They're like, somebody's pursuing the higher position. How dare they? And what do they do? 
And when the ten heard it, they began to be very greatly displeased with James and John. And the text doesn't leave you thinking that they're greatly displeased with James and John because James and John have such a poor view of leadership, whereas the other ten have this fully drawn out, fleshed out, biblical view of what leadership looks like, right? And I think that becomes even more clear because what does Jesus do in verse 42? Jesus doesn't say, hey, James and John, come here while I give you a further detailed, fleshed out understanding of what leadership looks like in my economy. Now he, he calls them all. He's like, all right, everybody come in. Like, everybody's going to come. Everybody's got to listen because you all have a misconception. You all don't understand what leadership looks like. And I'm going to teach you what leadership looks like. And so he calls them to himself in verse 42. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, The remaining disciples have misconceptions about greatness, and so Jesus calls them to himself so he can instruct them. Jesus addresses a common misconception in their society. 42, continuing on, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. People often assume that leadership was essential for greatness. And, and Jesus establishes a new paradigm, stating that it is not how, this, this is not how it will be among his communities. A misconception is this, that Leadership, greatness within the Gentile and even the Jewish community at the time was this. Greatness is found in having people submit to you in an unquestioning, um, always obedient fashion. Just you say uh, bow and they ask how look. You say get water and they say is this enough. You say, wash my feet, and they ask, is this clean enough? Like, just full obedience, unquestioned obedience, and Jesus says, this is how people think about this. But he tells them that greatness in God's economy is determined by service. Look at verse 43. Yet it shall not be so among you. Okay, so if that's the world's philosophy, and that's you know one of the one of the subcategories under the world's philosophy of greatness and leadership, Jesus says that's not how it's going to be among you guys. What's it going to look like in Jesus' economy? He tells them, "Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant." telling them that leadership and greatness within God's economy is going to be characterized by service. And he deepens the demand by asserting that one who will take the humility of the position of a slave is the one who is the best leader. He actually heightens the demand on the disciples. Verse 44, And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slavable. There's a difference between what a servant was and what a slave was. A slave was the more humble, more humiliating, more demeaning position within the economy of the time. 
so he deepens the imagery and he's like, in fact, this is what a great leader looks like. It's service. But if you want to be the first, if you want to be the best, if you want to have one of the greatest positions in my future time of great honor and great glory where everybody sees just how central I am, you have to be a slave. Jesus himself is the best model of this type of leadership. In verse 45, he goes on and he tells the disciples that he himself is a model of this type of leadership. And as you think about Jesus modeling this type of servant, slave leadership within his community, you see it so many different times. He models it in so many different ways. And yet Jesus says that there are many ways in which he models this, yet there is one way in which it is pinnacally demonstrated that he is great. And so one of the ways that we can look at the life of Jesus and see how he's modeled servant leadership. Just recently, we have all celebrated the birth of Christ. Think about the humility and service of Jesus in coming to the world. Many of us would not fathom allowing our wives or allowing yourself as a wife to give birth in a feeding trough. Right? And yet, God, the sovereign of all things, willingly allowed his son to be born. He models it in his ministry. Just this morning in our Sunday school, we were reading about the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus feeds them once, and what happens? They're all like, wow, this guy has free food. Free food. Guys, free food. It's the free food guy. Let's go follow the free food guy. We don't have to work another day in our lives. Free food. How does Jesus respond to that? It's like, unbelievable, guys. You need to believe in me. And their response is, show us a miracle and we'll believe. And he's like, free food. Like, he doesn't get angry at them. He doesn't berate them. He explains to them, like, you're missing the point. The point isn't free food the rest of your life. The point is, look what I've accomplished in serving you. This demonstrates something far greater. Yet they missed it. Jesus humbly serves them. Just look at all the times where Jesus comes alongside the, the, the doubting disciples and he humbly ministers to them. As they're in the boat, and the boat is being tossed and turned, and, and they freak out and they're like, Jesus, we're all going to die! But then the next thing comes up, and what's their response? The world's ending again! But Jesus continues to humbly serve them, coming alongside them. To the point where at the end of his ministry, what does he come and do? He comes and he demonstrates 
his service by washing their feet when the rest of them are far too proud to take on that demeaning act of service for one another. But the pinnacle way in which Jesus demonstrates his service to his disciples is talked about in verse 45. He tells them, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says, the pinnacle way in which I'll demonstrate my service to you is that I will die in your service. And as a result of my death, burial, and resurrection, through your faith in my finished act of service, you can trust in that and be forgiven of your sins. You can trust in that and receive the righteousness of Christ. You can trust in that and be declared a child of God. You can rest in that and know that your home in eternity is secure. Jesus says, guys, the world's way of thinking about greatness is wrong. This is how you As we think about what Jesus has just said, though, it's important for you and I to ask ourselves, have we received Jesus's primary means of service? Do you understand what Jesus has just said in verse 45? Jesus is looking at his disciples, some of whom will ultimately not trust in his finished work will not receive his greatest act of service on their behalf. And he says, I'm doing something completely different. You guys don't get it. And the scary thing is that some of us here could have heard the story numerous times, and yet we still don't get it. Let me, let me be very, very clear with you. You are a sinner. Your sin separates you from a holy, just, and good God. And there is nothing that you could ever do, no gift you could ever give, no act of service you could ever do, no amount of obedience you could ever pay, that would make you right in God's standing. Ever. There's no amount of punishment that you could bear that would ever account for the sin that you have committed. The punishment is eternal death. And God in his great love saw your needy position, he saw my needy position, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the earth to come and to die on the cross on my behalf and on your behalf. He died so that your sin penalty could be paid. He died so that you could receive his righteousness. He was buried and then he rose again. And the question is, what are you believing in? What are you trusting in for your eternal life? 
Jesus says in John or Mark chapter 10, the only thing that you can place your hope in is in Jesus's primary means of serving. He died for you. He died to pay the ransom for you. It was necessary. And so if you have not received his free gift of salvation, let me encourage you to talk to somebody today. Talk to myself, talk to one of the deacons, talk to a family friend that's a Christian that you know that you can trust. Be assured of your position in Christ. Having said that, let me move on to some further ideas by way of application. If you remember at the beginning, I, I said that James and John had a flawed method and um, motivation. And so you and I need to examine our hearts for misconceptions of greatness. It could be simply what we think, our motives. It could also be found in our method. Greatness is not about who serves you. Greatness is not about what you have. Greatness is not about your position of honor. Greatness in God's economy is about serving others faithfully. What do your actions and your thoughts tell you about what your idea of greatness is? You and I should expect to face pain in our service to God. Your pain will likely not raise to the level that Jesus faces or that James faces, or that John faces, but you and I will face pain. And we should prepare ourselves mentally for that. We will face sorrow, we will face pain as we pursue obedience to the Lord, as we pursue service to the Lord. We should be finding ways to serve in our local church. And there are lots of ways that we can do this. Many different ways. It may be that the, the way that you do it is through some type of physical ministry. And by that I mean just finding ways to care for the physical needs of people. There are lots of physical needs. And they kind of go, some of them, you know, they kind of follow the calendar, right? In, in, the, in the spring and summer, what do we need? If you have a house, you need someone to mow. In the fall, what happens? If you don't have the right kind of trees, the leaves fall. And they fill up your yard. And in the winter, what happens? 14 inches of snow, right? And then the cycle starts over again in the spring, right? I mean, it's beautiful when it first starts to spring up and you see that green grass and then, you know, it's like before you even really have a chance to like enjoy the fact that it's no longer white and it's green, it's like, I gotta make sure that my mower works and I can get outside and mow again. Like, there are so many different ways that we can minister to the needs of each other physically. And so we pursue ways of serving physically the needs of others. Another way that you and I should pursue serving each other is through prayer. Whether that be corporately gathering together and praying, or whether that be individual <coughs> prayers that you make your own private times by yourself when 
maybe an accompaniment with your family around times of worship as a family or times of meals as a family. One of the ways that we minister to each other, one of the ways that we serve each other is by praying for the needs of each other. Could be that we do so by teaching. And this can be done corporately or this can be done in individual private conversations. We find ways to teach and instruct each other and encourage each other, rebuke each other, remind each other of the truth of God's word and how it correlates to various aspects find ways to encourage each other. Remember this whole idea of encouragement and teaching ministry is even our times of corporate singing. Right? Ephesians tells us that what do we do? As we gather together, we speak the truth to one another through what? Through our psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is an opportunity as we gather corporately and we sing to use the opportunity to teach others, to encourage others, to instruct others, the truth of God's word. In addition to that, I think that another way that we can serve the body is by giving it. And that could be giving to people physical needs, or it could be found in giving to the church's needs. So we give. We give sacrificially. We give wisely. We give. But through all this, we also need to watch our motives. Motives are so very important and they're scary. Because so often, some aspect of our motives in doing almost everything is not quite right. And so it gives us an area where we're constantly working, constantly seeking to grow and pursue Christ-likeness. And so what steps are you going to take this coming week to serve, to develop, as Jesus says, to become a greater leader? It may never mean that you have some great position within the church. When people see your faithful acts of service in these and other areas, what happens? They begin to look up to you because... Jesus' economy does not define leadership as the amount of people who submit to you or obey you. Rather, Jesus says, leadership is defined by service. So let's look for ways to serve this coming week. Why? Because we know who Christ is. Why? Because we know the love of Christ that we've received. Why? Because we know that we love Christ. And those who love Christ will do what? They're going to love his followers. And they're going to find ways to meaningfully engage with and serve his followers within the body of believers. This coming year, let's know Christ better. Let's love Christ better. And let's serve Christ better. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it calls us to examine our hearts and that it provides us hope. The reason why Jesus confronts his disciples in this passage is because he assumes that there is the ability for them to change. That's a hope-filled message. That's a hope-filled thought. 
God, you've allowed us to be confronted with this passage this week so that we would examine our hearts, realizing that there's hope, as we're still living, there's opportunity for us to examine our hearts, to repent of areas where we have misconceptions, and to pursue and follow your path with greatness. We pray that this year would be a year that would prove to be a great year of service at Emmanuel Baptist Church. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Let's stand and sing that final song. Good morning, service.